Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm with a new friend or somebody I don't really know. In fact, Karina, I want you to pronounce your last name the way you like it, Aveillard. Yeah. Is it French originally? It is. Yeah. So it would be Aveillard or something like that. It would probably be. It would probably yeah. be. Right. And we met in Norwich, a surprisingly nice place. It is a lovely place. A lovely place. Yeah. But now we are in North London, near the so-called Silicon Roundabout, which is the pissy British attempt at creating an equivalent, more of Silicon Alley than Silicon Valley, I'd say. But we're meeting there just because it happens to be one of my haunts that I like, and you've kindly agreed to come here. And what we've agreed, what we're really here to talk about is not me and why I'm here, but you. So will you tell us what you're currently wrapped up in? Apart from a cardigan that's green and very nice colour. Very much. Um, well, I currently work at University of East Anglia as a lecturer yeah. in media studies, and in uh, June I'll be going to the University of Sydney to take up a three year postdoctoral research fellow um, to do a project focused on cinema, consumption cinema audiences. And that touches your past, doesn't it? It in does. That before being an academic, you were a kind of how can I say, applied scholar? What I would be the right way yeah, of putting it? How would you describe that's it? That's probably quite can a good description. So can you take us back, back, back to back, that? Back, back, yeah. When I left university and was unemployed for months really? <laughs> and got a job as a producer's assistant and that's how I ended up. I've always been interested in cinema and film, but that's, I guess, was my break, if you like. And then I worked in for various companies uh, in Australia, production companies, and I got mm-hmm. involved in business affairs side of running things. Yeah. I had a short uh, term, about a year or so, where I worked for Deutsche Bank as a media analyst uh-huh. and published some research reports from that and then uh, I got some work with the Australian Film Commission as a researcher and so that was very much intertwined with policy and I did that for eight years and then there was a restructure of the government agencies and very unusual in Australia. <laughs> every so every ten years or so, they decide to break them apart or put them back together. So this was a cycle where the smaller agencies got put back together. Right. And I was ready for a change. And so um, I was. I had been doing some research when I was at the Film Commission on their regional cinema program. They have a touring festival called Big Screen and had a couple of other initiatives that were going on and there was very little information about it and so I thought that would be a good thing to do a a research project on and so I got in contact with Albert Moran uh, and asked him to be a supervisor and he was very supportive and dear old Albie yeah one of the most wonderful men in the world he is absolutely lovely and so he suggested we apply for a linkage grant and now I asked the film commission if they would support that and hang on gobbledygook linkage Uh, grant what uh, does that mean Australian Research Council it's a industry academic collaboration so they're sort of so discovery grants, I guess, encourage people to collaborate with industries. These are formally required. The industry partner has to invest some cash and also to, um, time and resources and so on. So the Film Commission uh, agreed to participate in that and uh, we were successful with the grant. So 
that I did that for three and a half years. I did a project about um, cinema exhibition in Australia, um, looking at the industry side of things or how exhibition works and how that might have a particular um, impact or effects on rural places. Looked at what are the kind of pressure points for um, viability, sort of economic survival, those kinds of things. Uh, I also looked at uh, or I took quite a broad view, I suppose. So I looked at community cinemas and something like improvised cinemas, and so where people were screening films in sort of all sorts of unusual situations. Um, so it became also that kind of, I guess, lent itself to a sort of more sociological study as well, and thinking about um, the dynamics of everyday life in rural places, the challenges of isolation. Um, that feeling of disconnection that you can have from metropolitan places and so on, um, the, the role that cinema fulfills in small communities and, and those kinds of things, the questions that I looked at in my research as well. Um, it's all been summarised like, neatly in a book I've just published, which is based on my PhD research. And what's it called? The Lure of the Big Screen. The Lure of the Big Screen yeah. and it's about fishing, no, just kidding. <laughs> and the publisher? Is Intellect. Now, yeah. I had two things floating through my mind as you were just speaking. One was this film called something like The Moving Picture Man with John Milton. The Picture Show Man. The Picture yes. Show Man, yeah. about sort of yeah. Depression-era guy mm. who went around mm. somewhere in Australia yeah. with his projector. The South Coast, I think. South Coast of New South Wales. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. And the I've other was the, the beach market for films up along the coasts of Australia during summer seasons in particular that again would be very decentered compared to the big chains in the big cities. Yeah, but I guess Australia's climate lends itself to outdoor cinema mm. and so you get cinema occurring in a range of different places. So mm. Coffs Harbour, for example, has... Which is in northern New South Wales on the coast. Yeah. Uh, has a festival of sail, so they have a, a yacht race that goes from Sydney to Coffs Harbour, and then they have a whole series of events staged around that when the yachts arrive, and one of them is about your screenings, film screenings. And then, of course, in Sydney, in January, the festival of Sydney, you've got the film screenings and the botanic gardens. And, right. And that, but you're probably, I hope you were looking also at horrible, horrible inland places with no water, where it's just yeah. hellish and racist and redneck and frightening. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I went to a, a place called Baraba, which was probably a little bit like that. Baraba. Baraba. I, part of my field work, I went out to Ganada, Bingara, and Baraba. So that's in the northwest of New South the Wales. And these are these are places that have Aboriginal names, and um, often have lovely. Thank you so much. Aboriginal populations and frequently are horrendously racist. I don't know whether these particular country towns were, but thank you. That is the history. So this you yeah. just set the timer off, Karina. So. You've okay. now got three minutes and 53 seconds until you're meant to pour. Okay. You can pour any time you bloody like. There's your little milk bottle. And we have to hit, you know, off when it prints. Yes, there is. I think probably the, the most interesting town I visited in that regard was um, in Bowerville, which is quite, I guess, 
well known in Australia. Um, it was a place that was visited on the freedom rides, and this, the owner of the cinema. It's the civil rights movement in Australia in the 60s when Aboriginal people rode to Canberra or Sydney or somewhere to. They claimed the civil rights in the days before they were actually citizens. Yes, and the cinema owner quite famously boarded up his cinema and oh. shut down for the night. Did he? Yes. For fear? Yeah. yeah. I think fear for Aboriginal people coming in and also, I guess, fear for the civil disruption part of it. But Barrowville is a, um, a town with a quite a high Aboriginal population still. Um, it was a, now I forget the term, uh, a town where they sort of congregated Aboriginal uh -huh. people um, and there's still uh, a lot. Reservation or something like that? Yes, there is a term for it. Whatever it is, it'll come to you, it doesn't matter. But um, there's still a very high proportion of Aboriginal, over 50% right. of the population. Right. And it's quite an interesting thing. It's in the inland part of the North Coast, which is quite white, quite conservative and so on, but it has a quite significant Aboriginal population. Mm. I was really surprised. I got out of the car and then there loads of Aboriginal And was the film going stratified racially there? Would you say in terms of either people's practices or their yes, tastes or both? very clear. Uh, the cinema was a place that the local Aboriginal people didn't engage with at all. So it was a source of um, some very unhappy memories. The man who ran the cinema for many years and closed it on the Freedom Rise was very racist and um, you know, kept Aboriginal people out of the cinema. Um, so that they don't regard it very positively at all. And it was closed for quite a long time. There was a community project to resurrect it. And Lisa Milner, uh, she's a scholar that works at Southern Cross University. She was uh, very heavily involved in it and was a project manager of, of the restoration of the cinema. Mm. Um, but uh, despite quite a lot of work on, on her part and others, they haven't been really able to get Aboriginal, local Aboriginal people to use the cinema. Um, they've had one or two things, I think, some screenings of Aboriginal films like Rolf Deer's uh, Ten Canoes um, and they've helped but it's been a one-off rather than sustained. Mm -hmm. um, a bit like Museum of Modern Art, blockbusters about those angels get a different crowd in for one particular event. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's been um, different. But Barabur, Bingara and Ganadar, where I, I went to, there are Aboriginal populations out there too. And it was more, I guess, just a general kind of racism, a, a kind of um, we imagine you know, someone like Pauline Hanson and some of her ideas, uh, very right wing conservative. This was a fish and chip shop owner in Queensland? Our equivalent of Nigel Farage. Right, the equivalent in, of Britain's Nigel Farage. And she stood for right-wing politics yeah. in Australia ten years ago. She was a member of Parliament or something. Yeah. Fifteen, something yeah. like that. So far right, I guess. Yeah. 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 Wow. So they were interesting. I met some really, really interesting people. Yeah. Um, and um, and th probably don't all fit into the stereotype I just enunciated at all. No. Very, I've met, in fact, the 
fellow who's, who runs the cinema in Baraba, he has uh, he bought an old hotel uh, licensed premises, mm -hmm. turned it into uh, quite a nice B and B, and then built a cinema. Uh, on the end of that in the old uh, pool table room that wow. he bought, uh, old cinema seats, you know, from auctions where cinemas have been stripped out, yeah. like that. so he um, acquired things that way and sort of put it together and that's because that's, I guess, his passion. He and his partner lived in the UK, lived in London, he was an actor. Um, they went back to live in Baraba because his partner's parents died and um, they, they went back to the farm um, hmm. and he needed something to do to stop himself from going mad in an isolated Australian town and so that's what he does and he's fantastic um, and it's not just about you know bringing culture if you like to young culture it's not his approach to it at all he is very much try to be inclusive, involved in the community. So he screens a whole lot of different kinds of things, so some that you might put in a more art house spectrum, but he also screens a lot of mainstream films and he gets a lot of local teenagers to come. Friday nights is their night and it's sort of a um, date night. Yeah, it's an unwritten rule in the town that the teenagers go on Friday night. He puts on a film that appeals to them. No, no adults bother going because it's so the sort of place where I would have gotten kissed. Even yes, fabulous. Take yeah. me there. Yeah. So he has about twenty or twenty-five kids that come. Lovely. And it was yeah, and I spoke. I was able to interview some of them when I was there. It was brilliant. In there. between their passion. Yeah. They would occasionally cart for air, and you would say, "What was that like?" <laughs> so uh, I'm going to sound like the kind of person I don't want to sound like, but I have a question about this, which is this. Simply chronicling that, I think, is fantastic, really well worth doing. But I'm wondering whether there's an, an argument, a perspective, a position there that you're enunciating as well. You know, is there something that you think the Film Commission should ponder when it comes to supporting rural exhibition? Or is there something that people like me, who are metropolitan snobs, should rethink when it comes to considering rurality? Yeah, I think probably more the latter. Uh -huh. I find it's an interesting one. Having worked in a, in a policy environment yeah. for quite a long time, um, it's, it's difficult to uh, make a case for government or public funding for what's seen as, I guess, arts and culture, particularly anything that seems yeah. to be elite. Um, and I, I don't know that when I was thinking about that in the rural context, um, I think perhaps from a metropolitan perspective, there is a, a desire to kind of expose people to the same things, to allow them the same opportunity to see mm -hmm. interesting films, a variety of films. They, mm. don't want, they don't want them just watching Mamma Mia and those kinds of things. And I, and I, but in a way, I, I don't yeah. see that well, if you want to watch Mamma Mia and Judy Dench and those kinds of things, why shouldn't you be allowed to? Why should someone from outside come and say, your life will be improved because you watch these more sophisticated films? And uh, But I think what interested me the most, mm. and I guess where the focus of my research was and what I think I've written about is um, the role that cinema plays in the community. And I don't mm. mean in a way of kind of 
um, it's the centre or heart of society. And there's a lot of, um, I guess, glamorisation and romanticising, I guess, of what a cinema does in a small town. But I do think there is a role to play uh, for cinema and a whole lot range of other public places in, in creating a sense of social belonging, mm. investment, mm. and so on. And, very particularly those kids that I talked about going to in Barrabah really gave me such a strong sense of, of place yeah. and that this being able to interact and socialise in public places is so important. And I started reading um, things not to do with media or cultural studies but to do with sociology and to do with children and teenagers in particular. And this ability to socialise in public places is so important for you know, their development and I think also for adults. There's just something about going out, being in a public place, whether it's seeing a film, whatever it is that you're doing, you go home, you just feel more connected, I think, to, to where you are. It's one of the reasons I like to record these conversations in public places when my interlocutors agree, because I think there's real value in a naturalistic aesthetic, you could say, but one where conversations are although obviously constrained by the technology and the genre, relatively open and a bit like real life. In any event, so that's that's amazing. What, what were some things that you found out that surprised you? What amazed you? Well, one of the things that I did, I got some extra funding and I came to the UK and did some comparative research in Norfolk and Suffolk. Uh, I chose those areas because they're relatively close to London and they're also considered to be relatively isolated in, term, in UK terms in the sense that they don't have main roads. They're not on the way to anywhere. Uh, but I guess Norfolk is the kind of the butt of jokes in, the, in much the same way, say, Tasmania would be in Australia. So it's isolated and seen as being a bit inbred. People are a bit low IQ, you know, that kind of thing. So... I thought that that might be a good place to, and, and a feasible from a practical point of view. And I guess I went over there thinking that, you know, when they talk about isolated places and rural places in England, this really is a bit of a joke. When you think about it in an Australian context, I grew up in an Australian country town. Did you which one? Wagga Wagga. Oh, wow. I mean, just outside of there. So I guess I had a, a sense of what I thought was isolated yes. rural. I thought this, town, this, <laughs> this is ridiculous. But Wagga Wagga is quite a Western metropolis. Isn't it, it is. Actually, it's yeah. not no small. No, no. It's got a university. It has, yeah. which was a college of advanced education when I when I was a kid. Um, yeah, a teacher's college and ag college. Um, Agricultural college. Yeah, sorry. So I thought that I kind of downplayed or didn't think that this isolation and so on would really be as problematic here um, or in a place like Norfolk and Suffolk as it is in Australia. And one of the things that really surprised me was not only the sense that people had of that being a very real issue, but the sense I had personally of feeling isolated when I was driving around to all these, you know, places in low, you do pass a farmhouse perhaps a lot more regularly than uh, you, you would do in Australia where you go for a long, you could drive for a long time and not see any building of any sort. 
But you could drive for three days. You could. If but you went west of Wagga. The sense of isolation was still as palpable. Right. And That's that, I think, was really surprising. And because I came with that very, quite a preconceived idea about that and had my mind changed very much. And, you know, and I think, particularly when you start to think about uh, young kids, teenagers and so on, um, you know, if something is seven miles away or 70 miles away, it doesn't, it doesn't make, make much any difference. difference. You can't drive a car. Yeah. There's no be any bus. You know, there's, and yeah. if there is, it won't be the time you can, will want to catch it. Uh, so that, you know, that the immense sort of geographic Mm-hmm. It didn't really make as much yeah, difference as I thought yeah. it was going to. Yeah. That was one That's a goodie, I like that. Yeah. Pause for some tea, don't right. feel you have to <laughs> deny yourself wetting the whistle just because it's got to be all about you. That's a wonderful story, actually. And so you got a further grant that took you to that part of the world, and you also then got a job at University of East Anglia, is that what happened? Yeah. Yes, oh. so I went for 16 weeks. Uh, Stayed for three years? No, I went back to Australia, finished my PhD. So I went back to Australia about six, seven months. To Albi, went back to Albi's To Albert, yes, I did. And then there was a job advertised at UEA. And you could spell Norfolk and Suffolk and they gave you the job? <laughs> And you weren't from Tasmania? I wasn't. So you were uh, No, well, I, I, part of the job was to work on impact case studies, which was a, a new requirement for the REF in the UK. So the Research Excellence Framework, which is the national government's means of evaluating the research outputs and alleged impact of universities. Yes. 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 Well put. And because I think my research and policy background outside of academia, I was seen as, you know, they were seen as valuable skills. Um, So that was really good. So that helped me make the transition from, I guess, from student to an academic post. So that was a really key thing for me. That's my first academic post. Right. And what were you teaching and what were you studying while you were being a lecturer at the University of Stanford? Well, I was teaching a module uh, about research methodology, research practice, I guess. So module is English uh, corporate speech for a class or a course. <laughs> uh, so students all have to do a dissertation or a thesis at the end of their degree in their third year. They all do a dissertation, and so in second year, I taught a module that teaches teaches them how to do research, independent research. Uh, And then I also, uh, with another colleague, introduced a new module uh, onto our media studies program called Contemporary Mediascapes, which really is a bit of a fancy title, but it was a module designed to think about media not so much media content, but I guess media technologies and so on, and in relation to questions about place and space and location. Um, so that was interesting. So I taught that for the first time last year, and um, yeah, I think it went reasonably well. But there's a lot of quite big conceptual ideas in there um, for students, and so it's a second year uh, sort of course, and I think it could easily have probably been a master's level course. 
And the British system is a three-year undergrad degree relevant to this. And what were you studying or doing research on? With PhD out of the way and rural cinema, I guess you were probably writing up the book, right? I was. I have yeah. been working on writing up the book. I've written a couple of book chapters. Um, I've done some research while I've been here, which has been following on from what I began, I guess, when I was doing my PhD, but allowed me to do a bit more. Uh, which has been about the Film Society movement in the UK and thinking about how that, the trajectory from that to the kind of community cinema setup that yeah. there is now. Um, and again, picking up on my um, thing which I love to write about, uh, which is um, sort of the cultural hierarchy and um, the sort of, I guess, cultural superiority or the of film societies and the way in which they sort of um, pushed education and, and, and film appreciation and we will teach you to like the right kinds of films and to make you a better person to, to the sort of situation that we have now where community cinemas don't want to do that um, and very, very much resist being pushed in terms of the kinds of things that they screen. They want to screen the things that suit their communities and suit their demographic and so on. So, so, it's a long time since I had anything to do with the Australian Film Commission, and I was not an expert about it. One of the things that it used to support, including a couple of things that I was involved in, was film culture. It wasn't in there in those days to support feature films that were supposedly commercial. It was there to support the independent sector, but also magazines, newspapers, scholarly journals, and so on. And it still does that, does it? although not to the same degree right. as, as it was did. Um, because that's, I mean, one of the great, one of the very um, recurring kinds of themes that run through Australian film policy is that tension between commerciality and like, fostering uh, an independent um, production sector that yeah. perhaps has uh, a national board, you know, a, a less tangible value, but is sort of seen as important for national identity, national culture, this idea of Australians telling Australian stories. You know, this that, is the sort of Susan Dermody, Liz Jacker, Industry One versus Industry Two yeah. debate, or David and Judith McDougall talking about commercial versus artisanal Cinema, yeah, I and I think in terms of policy, there's it sort of waxes and wanes between <laughs> we want to support the industry so that it can then be financially independent, yeah. and yeah. then that doesn't work, so then they change. So <laughs> we still want the industry, but we won't expect it to be commercially independent. Uh, but we, it has a value um, regardless, and therefore we'll support it and expect different things from our funding. And, and that really does seem to be very cyclical. Since the beginning of the 70s, you had uh, the Australian Film Development Corporation, which was the organisation that came before the Film Commission. So that, I think that just keeps going back and forth. And the film culture bit is the industry too part, the artisanal mm. as well. Yes. Yeah. But it sounds as though many of the community cinemas you're talking about would find that kind of thing rather patronising. The idea that yes. the centre has education that it can bring to the yes. periphery. Yeah, and, and men, most times they don't want it. Yeah. Not interested in it. Um, the thing that does work 
really well, which they do with the big screen program, uh, is bring filmmakers and actors and so on to screenings that they hold in country areas. And people really love that, uh, that sort of aspect of it. But it's interesting because I've gone to a few <laughs> sessions like that and where they'll have a Q&A with someone after and so on. And it's quite interesting the kinds of questions um, that audiences ask are very different to a Q&A you might go to at the barbecue down the road. <laughs> you know, so people aren't asking... Did you have your own trailer? Do they ask things like that? No. <laughs> they don't. That's what people in the barbecue uh, ask. I'm yeah. just kidding. So what, what would be the different questions in the two spaces? Well, they would ask... People would be very interested in the, deep, in the, in the country place. They would be very excited that the person, the filmmaker is standing there in front of someone who's made a film or been in a film. Yeah. Uh, a lot of questions about the practicalities of the production, so things like how did you cast, you know, these at, you know, a film with children, you know, how did you, where did you find the kids? Um, they, I went to one screening where the whole room seemed to be really fascinated by this idea that you don't shoot a film in sequence. Right. So the, the first scene of the film isn't the first thing that's shot, for example, and that's into the whole room. So, pardon. So, and that then prompted a whole lot of discussion about you know how film is sequenced. Um, sometimes there'll be questions about uh, the set, the decor. Wallpaper, that was particularly distinctive. Wallpaper? You know, those kinds Fun. of things. So, wow, that's so interesting. Um, people don't want to ask, um, you know, I guess more in-depth questions and, and certainly don't want to ask questions where they're putting the person on the spot. I think, I would certainly a level of... Very polite? Reverence. Oh, reverence. Yeah, almost. interesting. Um, Country gentility. Yeah, and it's interesting. I went to a film screening in rural Norfolk where we had the Q and A, and there was some, yeah. some questions that I felt, you know, I really wanted to ask this guy. He comes from a very privileged background. He made a film, and he was the lord of the estate in, in the local area. As his filmmaking, I guess, was more of a hobby. But I was quite interested to ask these questions, and it was one of those moments, you know, where you sit in the, well, I don't know, I was part of the audience, yeah. and I listened to what the other kinds of questions people were asking, and I was a bit surprised, but then it was also in that moment I thought, well, if I start asking my fancy or more intellectual questions, I'm changing the whole dynamic of what's going on in this room, and if I'm not here doing this research, then that would never that question would never be asked. And so I didn't ask it quite very girly of you. <laughs> but isn't that the interesting thing about participant observation? Yes, it is. How much of a participant you feel you can be. I mean Frederick Wiseman, for instance, I've asked him about his direct cinema observations. What happens when he's in a school for the visually disabled and there's a small child, four or five, gets away from its handlers, basically, and walks down concrete steps and could fall over? What happens when he's filming a woman being strangled by a police officer? You know, these are limit cases. At what point do you say, actually, I think I'd better do something because people might be injured or die? Yeah. Yeah. And he said, well, those are the two limit cases where I was about to do something. Okay. Yeah. And then I did. Yeah. 
I didn't because the cop realised I'm going to kill this woman on camera, and I didn't because the child made it down the steps. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think it is something. I think when you are involved, that relationship between the participant and the observer yeah, and how much you can change something. So where, when I was doing my PhD research, I lived on the north coast of New South Wales, just south of Coffs Harbour, in a place called Sortel. And I was involved in a volunteer group in the community that put on some screenings at the cinema once a month as a sort of to, to help boost attendance and interest in things. And so they would get whatever film was on and then organise an event around it. So we had uh, some dress-up things, um, we had some uh, entertainment, like some guest speakers, we did a lovely thing for Samson and Delilah, that film, we had some Aboriginal elders come and another local man to play Did We Do, um, and those kinds of things, but which were great. Um, and I was part of the committee to help sort of organise these things. But again, it was another one of those situations where I thought I shouldn't have been the leader. I'm helping group. to construct my research object, not just intellectually, but yeah. pragmatically, yeah. material. And so I didn't do any of those kinds of things. I, I, I baked cakes. I, you know, cleaned up at the end. I tidied. Right. You know, I did the menial things. Um, that help to make it work, yes. but they don't design it, no. don't animate it. No. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think you know that was another one where I, I had to think very carefully about what I was doing, and you know, arguably, maybe I shouldn't have been involved in it at all. But I think it's wonderful when communities get something out of the research that's done. In this case, not only I'm sure a wonderful book, but also cleaning up and cake baking and other valuable yeah. things that are invisible labour, frequently women's yeah. labour. For all kinds of mm. cultural activities, mm. yeah. really need doing. Yeah. So I'd say good on you. And I think there's an argument that says, with notions of action research, for instance, your co-designers, co-theorists of your phenomena with other participants—they're yeah. no less analytical or theoretical than you are. No. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a complicated one. Wow. So, okay, that's what you've been doing at UEN. Yes. And yeah. now you've decided to flee this sceptered isle. What have you, what's lured you away? Uh, I'm going to the University of Sydney in June. So a postdoctoral research fellowship has lured me away. Three years of um, being able to devote myself again to a research project. Um, Sydney's got a very good reputation, particularly in media studies, and I guess that's, even though I do research on cinema, I guess I see, do see myself more as a media studies person, rather than, I guess I don't think many film studies people would recognise what I do as film studies. Um, and to work with Jared Goggin, who I've done some sort of small collaborations with through journal editing and so on, um, and I've been involved in developing my ideas for this research on cinema that I'm going right. to do. Oh, and tell us about that. What will you be working on? So I'm, I think I want to look at um, this, what's happening, I guess, with cinema consumption in a contemporary context, so not just in a rural context. Mm -hmm. So it interests me, I guess, at, for several reasons and at several levels. Um, I think that one of the things that media studies is 
trying to come to terms with and not necessarily very successfully yet is the sort of multi-platform, multi-content, the sort of, I guess, what's sometimes called media saturation, but these distinctions that allowed us to understand media products and media consumption in the past. So cinema meant going to a cinema, watching television meant watching television in your lounge room. So that all of that is now far more fluid than it was once was. Um, so cinemas can still mean going to a cinema, but it's still, it can mean watching content in a number of different ways. I think cinema is an interesting one because it's, I guess, one of those ones where type of media that tends to be a bit disregarded and uh, I guess everyone's uh, one, but many people tend to be very negative about future prospects. They tend to sort of say, well, it's, you know, everything will be online, no one will go to cinemas anymore, aren't box office receipts or, you know, plunging. Um, you know, there tends, I guess, tends to be the view that somehow cinemas had its day and it's so. And I guess I'm also aware that I'm mixing, when I'm talking about cinema, I'm mixing the building and the, con yes. like the content. Sure. Um, so you should. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, that fascinates me as well because I think there's many things that point to that not being the case. Yeah, um, and the I, new German cinema was all about television. Yeah. Uh, and also, I guess from an industry point of view, it continues to be produced, marketed, and so on as a distinctive kind of product. And I think that there's too much, it's sort of lazy in a way to sort of say, well, we'll all watch it online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. free online. And, and I think there's sort of studies that are coming out about that um, suggest that people go online and watch content online for a very specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And so to say, oh, everyone watches films on their mobile phone now is, is a kind of ridiculous statement because no one's going to watch a film on their phone if they've got a choice of watching it on something else. I mean, people watch, you would commute and so on, you see people watching films and TV programs on a tablet, but they're probably not going to watch it on that when they get home. It's a convenience. So I, you know, there's a lot more kind of going on in there, I think, that is good, is interesting to try to to the bottom of. It also picks up on another of my areas of interest, which is about place and place and location. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I guess cinema was, was and kind of still is in a way, somewhere that's very embedded and, and very linked to place, whereas a lot of uh, research and, and theorising that's going on around new technologies and mobile technologies is all uh, our arguments about um, perhaps dis disassociation from place, um, or you get sort of, which I, I guess, kind of think is a more helpful way to think about Sean Moore's idea about the doubling of place and this inhabiting these multiple places. Uh, and so we think that an investigation of cinema in this way, thinking about all the different places it's um, watched and consumed and how and why, um, is hopefully something that will be quite productive. Yeah, sure. I wonder if I could ask you one last question, because I'm hoping we can get through this before they kick us out, we're in a reserved seat in this nice coffee shop, the name of which I can never remember. And it's this, I wanted to ask you about what difference you think it's made having been a researcher before you became a scholar. 
whether that's enabled, disabled, or been irrelevant to your work. I think it's work. helped me a lot. Yeah. And I think that what it's probably more so than anything has allowed me to see things from a different perspective, to ask questions about not only how do I see this, but how would others view this. And so I think particularly thinking about commercial perspectives and, and policy perspectives, which are particularly commercial, I don't know that academics are always so feel so confident um, in, in thinking about things from that perspective. Um, so I think it, that has helped me a great deal. It's to, and I think it's also, um, I feel that I can't just do research or do things because I think I'm interested in them. I, I, I am always, I guess, driven by the sense of well, what does it mean? Who's it going to help? Why is this useful? Why are you doing this? You know, and are you saying professors are just self-indulgent <laughs> wankers? <laughs> um, you get the argument from it. me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that that also, coming from that, as ha having that mm. as a background, um, does make you think about those kinds of things. And I think having different perspectives on life, being involved in meeting different people, can only help you. And I think that that pathway from, you know, being very bright at school, going to university, being very bright at university, doing a PhD, and then becoming mm. a, a, an academic in university is, is fantastic, but it does, you know, potentially um, give you a fairly limited... Yeah, it routes you in a particular life. very teleological direction yeah. without these other experiences of the theories and pragmatics of everyday life, yeah. work life, and the orientation that you gained very specific to what you've later gone on to profess. Yeah, I think it does help. Well, thank you. Can I extract a promise that either in the middle of or the end of your time with Jared Goggin on this postdoc, you come back into the pod, maybe with the old boy, yes. drag him in as well, and the two of you or just you can talk about what you found out? Okay. Thank you. That'd be wonderful. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks. Why